Good afternoon, you are listening to Isotopica with me, Simon Tishko, here on Resonance 104.4 FM. And on today's broadcast, along with the usual sonic detours, sounds and mixes, we will jump into a conversation I've been having with an old friend, Mr. Dudley Sutton, national treasure, acting legend and all-round jolly good egg. Uh, where he is detailing early days of English theatre, his time in English theatre in the 1950s. Uh, we just jump straight in during the conversation today for various technical reasons, but in future weeks there will be more, including Dudley's fabulous trips to the Soviet Union in the 1950s with the Joan Littlewood Very Left Field Theatre Workshop. Um, really gripping stuff. And Dudley is always a delight to listen to. If you want to find out any details of today's show and other episodes, they can be found on the website www.theculture.net and also on iTunes. Look for Isotopica or me, Simon Tishko, whichever. Anyway, find a comfy seat, pin back your ears, and let me distract you for an hour. Thank you all. Welsh, but I was listening to all the accents of the English language, and here, I, here was I, a student of the drama, and the drama of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art was all the language of the middle class, and it really peeved me. Because middle class or the ruling classes? No, the middle, middle class. The middle class, the, the ruling class. I think that's the same thing nowadays. But then this is the 1950s, so yeah. early 1950s, 50s. No, I, don't, I think the aristocrat, the aristocracy lost its its uh, its effect after the First World War. They were virtually blown out of the water. I think so. But I think the rise of the middle class happened between the wars. But then, how does that the tie in with the idea of going to the theatre or the cinema and having the national anthem played? This kind of well, this is old hang-ups, isn't it? I mean, it took them years. It takes them years and years to get rid of stuff. It's easier to put things on the statute books and take them off, you know. I mean, no, I mean, I think the point I'm trying to make is that I knew from my experience in the air force that the English language is rich and varied and funny and lively. And yet the English of the the middle class, the English middle class, was stilted and dull. And uh, I couldn't understand why the theatre didn't express this wonderful, rich vernacular language. I couldn't, it didn't make sense to me, you know. 
and uh, I'd spent four years in the RF, as I say, listening to these wonderful expressions. And I had this mate this down there, I think it was in Staffordshire or somewhere, I've forgotten, but his language, and his best mate was called Hector, and in the morning you say, hey, boy, the fuck do us have to wear those boots. I love boots for boots. I, mean, I was listening to this and I was fascinated by it all. You know, I mean, you go to the theatre and it's all the, the officers, the officers, middle class. How do you do? Oh, Jeremy, it's so very, very fine, very lovely to see you. Cigarette. Thank you, thank you. Want some later? Yes, of course. Oh, yes, we used to have a thing called um, f Shoot Cuff Flicker Ronson. That was one of Ian McShane's jokes. Shoot a car, flick a Ronson. I love you very, very much. Cigarette. Thank you, darling. What you're doing for Britain is something really rather fine. Cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> it is with a great regret that I sentence you to death. Cigarette. No, what was it? On the, on the, on the radio, it was um, five babies were burnt in a fire in East London. Cricket. <laughs> it was like that. It was so strange. But I mean, you know, I mean, here was here was I. I was going to be a student in the theatre. I actually just wanted to be a student because I'd been reading Dostoevsky when I was in the Air Force. Crime and punishment. Punishment. I got punished for reading in the Air Force because I went. I, <laughs> I joined the Air Force in a fit of depression following too many German Expressionist films in, in, in the Edgeware Road in the late 40s. And I mean, you know, little numbers like Blue Angel or the cabinet of Dr. Caligari would really Lenny bring Lenny Riefenstahl. Yeah. Oh, no, she wasn't around. No, that wasn't Lenny Riefenstahl, no. Blue Angel. Good Lord, no. She did one called Blue Lantern. That's where I'm getting confused. She did. Yeah. Lenny uh, uh, uh. Riefenstahl. No, she was the, the Hitler, Hitler's movie maker. Oh, Blue Angel being... Blue Angel was... Uh, Marlena Dietrich. Of course. And it was this schoolmaster who was in love with her. Yeah. And the school kids all knew it and they teased him and he finished up going mad and was prancing around like a cockerel in the end. I mean, it just brought me down. Everything at that time depressed me. I was a very depressed teenager. Here was I in London at the age of 17 going to these dreary, awful, depressing films. And I became so depressed that I joined the Air Force. Well, I've been to an English public school and I've been to an English prep school. So if you've been institutionalised, you answer your emotional problems with an institution. Another Hence institution. all those Etonians in, in prison, mm -hmm. you know, throughout the world. You know, that's what you do. So I joined the RAF and um, I didn't have the maths. So they said, oh, well, if you learn the maths, you can become a pilot. I had this vague idea of being a pilot. But I was too lazy and I became an engine mechanic instead. But the moment I entered the billet and met all these guys who hadn't been to a public school, I just fell in love with the language. Mm. And I didn't see any point in, uh, in uh, becoming an officer. And there was a, young, a bunch of young officers got hold of me one day and said, Look here, Sutton, you went to a public school. Why aren't you taking a commission? And I said, Look, I've been to public school. I said, In the officer's mess, it's just like being back at school. You actually play rugger with the cushions. <laughs> and if you, I say, if a chap enters the mess with his hat on, with his cap on, he has to buy everybody over the rank of, I don't know, squad leader drink. I said, Oh, go away. I've had all that tosh. Enough. I want to see something new. 
Fuck it, the fucking thing's fucking well fucked. Get my vote any day of the week. And a pestic petrometer, just like Byron in the Siege of Shenacherib. I like to think I was as clever as that. I wasn't. But it was it was the language that I loved. And, uh, well, then, of course, the Depression kicked in again. And I was living in a billet with a guy who was a manic depressive. He was actually a cartoonist as well. He used to make draw very good, clever cartoons, a guy called Jack Clayton, I think. When he could. Yeah. No, so no he, especially when he was depressed. Oh, really? He was, best one. He, yeah. was, he could perform. Yeah. He was very he was good. Depressed. And uh, he taught me all the symptoms. I was, a, I was the leading light of the Thorny Island Amateur Dramatic Society. It was every, every RAF base, every RAF base of any size is like an English village. Mm -hmm. It has its amateur drama society, it's had its egg and spoon races and Cricket team. <gasps> Cricket, football. Uh, I mean, this, this brings us back to why I got punished for reading. I hated sport. I like to say, I'm proud to say I've never committed an act of sport in my life. I don't tend to start now, in spite of the recent glorious Olympics, which I enjoyed. But um, I, I just it didn't, I didn't get it. And you had to have a sport because it's just like school. You're back at school. You've got to be competitive, and I couldn't stand being competitive. So they found out that I'd worked on a fishing boat in the Channel Islands. So I was allowed to do sailing. I couldn't do football. I didn't do cricket. Ball was too hard. Hurt. Major stings your hand. You worked on a fishing boat. You I worked on a fishing boat for a short while. So mm -hmm. they said, right, well you can join the sailing club. Okay. So I joined the sailing club, and I wormed my yeah, and I wormed my way in to being the barman in the sailing club, which was even better. Yeah. So I get pissed all day, and I could rob the people blind, and um, I learned how to sail this wretched boat, and I loved sailing around this beautiful Sussex, uh, Chichester Harbour, with mud flats and curlews, in the evening and just sailing. And then they said, "You've got to race." You know, they just take all the joy and the lyricism and the f poetry of sailing a dinghy in Chichester Harbour and turn it into a bloody competition. I, I, I learned very early on, for every winner there are a lot of losers. And I've never <laughs> seen the point of this bastard swanking back to the dressing room all covered in sweat when I was still completely untouched in my drooping shorts. <laughs> Oh dear, no, I mean, it was just so awful. So I, I used to stay in, in sports afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, and I would read. Um. And this sergeant and this officer used to come around, combing the barracks to try and find people who were reading <laughs> when they should have been out there bullying each other and competing with each other and turning other people into losers. And uh, I was reading Dostoevsky at the time, and I decided I'd become a perpetual student. As so. Uh, which was fantastic. It was very exciting. Sorry, what were you saying? I was, no, it wasn't at all. I was going to say now, actually, we could swap seats and I shall put some new software into your computer. All right, okay. And um, we'll carry on, shall we? And I think carry on, because that's. It's all getting in, in a bit of a muddle, but. What had happened uh, when I was in the RF? I had, you, you know, uh, as a, as a, a non-commissioned man in the Air Force, you have the English class system really rubbed in your face. Mm -hmm. Albeit it was out of date, 
Um, but the officers have better food, better living conditions, better money, much better clothes than we have. And we'd have to stand out in the drizzling rain in our ghastly suits uh, while they'd be under the, under the um, eaves with their leather gloves and their beautiful overcoats called British Warms, which I rather envied. And little sports cars? And they were, yes, of course, sports cars, blazers, flannels, all that kind of stuff. And I'd been in school with these guys, so I became the interpreter between the men and the officers. So when an officer came into the billet and he'd go, right, carry on, chaps, jolly good, carry on. Yes, absolutely, jolly good, very good, carry on. And they'd say afterwards, they'd say, what's he on about? I say, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. The great thing about English public schools, they teach you when you don't know what you're doing to keep talking. I mean, Cameron is a case in point. If you don't know what you're talking about, keep talking. Boris is excellent at it. Except I think that Boris does know what he's talking about. He's talking about Boris. Boris, yeah, exactly. But uh, there you go. Um, so anyway, where, where we got to? Oh, yeah, this business of class and having class rubbed in your face all the time. Um, and when I came into the theatre... Oh, no, this is what happened. I got depressed, so I was allowed to buy myself out from being an engine mechanic. And I said to the uh, education officer, who was a product of the 45 Attlee government and those incredible so-called red brick universities. So left-leaning officers was very unusual, usually in the education department. And um, they, they would look after you and take care of you and try to advise you and help you on your way into civilian life. A bit like being rehabilitated in, in, in prison, I think it was a bit similar. To lead the services? Yeah, to lead the services. And uh, so I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And this education officer said, well, of course you do. He said, well, everybody knows that. You're going to be an actor. I said, well, I can't be an actor. He said, of course you can. I said, well, how can I be an actor? Because none of them, nobody in my family, my dad was in the same man car business, you know, become actors. And he said, well, you go to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And I said, don't be a twerp. I can't go anywhere royal. He said, you're the twerp. He says, you're in the Royal Air Force, aren't you? Why don't you write a letter by the Royal Mail to get an audition for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art? Well, I was terrified, especially when I got a, an audition and I went up to London and I did this audition. I had no clue what to do. Where would it have been? At the, at the RADA in Which Gower Street. In Gower in Street. London, yeah. Is it still there? Yeah, it's still there. Uh-huh. The Italian restaurant we used to use is still there as well, called Olivelli's, around in Store Street, I think, or Cheney Street. But um, there it was, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and these carved figures over the thing. Very exciting. But then you go in, or you'd be told to learn a speech or study speeches by Shakespeare, who I'd heard of, mm-hmm. Sheridan, who I'd never heard of, and I forget who else. Uh, and a modern piece, and I didn't know any modern piece. I didn't know anything. I read a book about John Gielgud, and I quite liked that because he was worried about his legs all the time. Was he really established at that time? Oh, in God, the 1950s, yes. he was, he was very, very oh, big. Oh, huge, huge. Because the vision it, of the 1950s is very black and white, or that very strange English technicolour, the kind of slightly cheaper technicolour of the 1950s, but it must have been very real colour for you. Yeah, I suppose. I don't know. I mean, we think of the, ink, the 1950s. It's been a very black and white time. Very well, my, my kids think I was brought up in black and white. Mm. But then I think most kids think that. 
Mm. In fact, I think uh, when I was living in Soho and I, and I in Paddington in the late forties, it was bloody black and white. Because mm-hmm. all this is before the Clean Air Act. Oh, you know, London, London was full of sulphur. It was a mess. And all the buildings very black. Very, very black. Very black. But um, no, anyway. So I went. I went to the Rada and I got uh, a bursary for three pounds a week. So, <laughs> well, no, you know, I mean, three pound a week was what you were being paid in the air force. I had all my fees paid uh-huh. and three quid a week. That's remarkable. And. Uh, yeah, and so as long as you kept worked in coffee bars and stuff, and you worked as a waiter or something, you could see it, you could do it. You know? But um, I assume when I went. How old were you when you went to Rada then? Uh, let's see, 1955, so I was born in 1933. So 22. I'd be 22, yeah, 22. I was a virgin, virtually. I'd worked in a holiday camp as a photographer in the summer between the end of the Air Force and the beginning of the RADA, ostensibly to um, save money. But uh, I was introduced to strong drink. <laughs> we all got pissed all the time, especially the staff. And the campers all come up and they want to get the staff pissed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a lovely girlfriend at the time, a girl from Wembley called Jackie, who's great. And another one called June, different times. And um, I knew nothing. I was such a virgin in so many different ways. And when I arrived at the RADA, I had not a clue. All I all I knew was it was all about the bloody officers. And all that rich language I'd heard amongst my friends in the Air Force was not there. You were back in the officers' mess. I was back in the officers' mess after all. The Royal Academy of Dramatic Art was everything that it, it uh, sounded like. I mean, I thought it'd be something like Edward Gordon Cray with great pillars and shafts of light and people looking like Greek philosophers standing around talking at least about politics, at least about something. But all they were talking about was acting <laughs> and acting in these um, bourgeois plays. You know, I was taken to the theatre, I saw a play called Carrington V.C. about a chap who disgraced his name by failing to pay his officers' mess bills and nonsense. <laughs> My uncle took me to it. It was very nice for him to take me, but God, it was dull. And then I went to the old Vic to see Shakespeare, mm-hmm. fell in love with Claire Bloom. This is all when I was in the Air Force. Well, yeah, Absolutely wonderful. The only time in my life ever I've sent away for a picture of an actress was to Claire Bloom. She was the most beautiful girl. She doesn't know how many times I had her. (laughs) (laughs) Her photograph was in my locker, Uh accompanying me to the the loo many, many times. Delightful. (laughs) Delightful. She was lovely, that Claire Bloom. But her poor girl, she didn't realize I was her passionate enamorata. I saw her play Viola at the Old Vic. I saw Richard Burton playing. I didn't really understand what was going on, except she had this terribly posh voice, this terribly posh, rather bossy voice. And uh, I had this masochistic dream of being whipped by Claire Bloom in a prison cell in the Air Force as a kind of glorious punishment. Fairly standard dream then. Pretty standard stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty standard masochistic stuff. Um, 
Yeah, and I mean, I didn't dig the Shakespeare, and they would all stand with one leg bent on, on a rostrum and pearl earrings and talking in this terribly posh way, except for Burton, who, who spoke with a Welsh accent, had a bit of music to it. This reminds me of that Dylan Thomas poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, Purge Rage Against the Dying of the Light. And you, my father, there in the pants. Oh, it's great. Fuck it, the fucking thing's fucking well fucked. <laughs> well, that was, um, I don't know, it was just a confusion. It was a confusion of depression and frustration and a lack of understanding, and uh, very intolerant I was. Um, it sounded like you stumbled into all of this. How did your family yeah. react to this? Were they supportive or no, just well, no, It was very oh, funny, actually, yeah. because the, sta the, the style at the RADA, which I really enjoyed, was camp. Okay. Because one thing that happened to me in the Air Force was that I, I knew a gay guy called Gloria, who used to be, we didn't call it gay in those days, it was called queer. He was a queer, who used to be a window dresser at Liberties. And we were being inspected by this fierce general type officer, Air Vice Marshal, somebody or other, and in absolute state of terror that if he found any infringement in our uniforms, we'd be desperately punished. And as he hove into view on the parade ground, I heard Gloria say, Oh, get her. And the whole authority collapsed. <laughs> and I understood then and there the great subversiveness of camp. I loved it. I absolutely cried and cried with laughter at these little remarks that Gloria would come out with. And I was um, brought up by, I like to say that I am a highly trained anti-Semitic racist homophobe. Because I was brought family. up by my father, my father, yeah. who was a Daily Mail reading like fascist. He would have oh, been a he would perfect Nazi. Yeah. The, the small businessman, mm -hmm. paranoid about Jews doing him out of usual stuff. But paranoid about gay and and of course I was reading Oscar Wilde and I loved Oscar Wilde and I had a terrible time the only time my father ever struck me was ironically with a rolled up copy of the Daily Mail <laughs> for asking him what Oscar had done because they couldn't bring themselves to say what Oscar had done. And of course it was a broadsheet then. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, it was <laughs> a point. A point Good well point, made. A point. point well made. Yes, yes, yes. But um, no, I mean, I adored. I mean, you know, Lady Bracknell. You know, the whole system of modern education is radically unsound. Fortunately, in England, at any rate, it has no effect whatever. Mm. I mean, it's just delightful. And later on, she describes the French Revolution as an unfortunate movement. And I spent days laughing at that. Who was Lady Bracknell? Lady Bracknell is the, the leading light of the importance of being earnest, which is probably the funniest comedy oh, of course, of course, in the of course, English of course, language. Of course, of course. You know, the, the handbag. Is Back to one? the theatre. And the handbag? Oh, was the whole play is so funny. The whole system of modern education is radically unsound. Fortunately, in England, at any rate, it has no effect whatever. If it had, it would prove a danger to the upper class and probably lead to acts of violence in Grosvenor Square. Well, in the 60s, it, it did, did yeah. lead to acts of violence in Grosvenor Square, and it was the students. Prophetic... I don't care how he got his bum done, he had this wonderful language and this wonderful ability and this prophecy, this prophetic. Anyway, that was, uh, so Gloria was my, and then, so I'm going back to your question. Camp 
was the style of drama students, male drama students at the RADA, and I embraced it a hundred percent. You asked about my father, yeah, and I went home, and I was camp, campus Chloe, and I went to campus a slice, uh, slice loaf, and my brother came out and said, Dudley, <coughs> are you queer? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd had the opportunity, you know, the the intelligence then to say, look, one, and wait till you're asked, duck. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't, I just got very frightened. Oh. No, 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 of course not, sorry. But uh, no, I didn't know what was going on. And uh, I, I, we kept being given free tickets to the theatre. You know, we'd go along and see these insufferable plays. What sort of theatre? Oh. There was no national theatre then, was it? No, no. Bring, bring, hello. Dr. Libard's house. Yes, just a minute, I'll see if she's here. Excuse me, Mum. Yes, Janet. It's a phone call. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, working class. How very obliging of me. It was just awful. It's awful. You know, thank you, you feckless, wanton piece of social trash for answering my telephone. Yeah. Hello, let's get on with the proper stuff of the play now. Oh. Having established the class precedent yes, exactly. and the standards exactly. that have to exactly. be maintained. Yes, enter Lady So-and-so through French windows with a trog of gladioli. <laughs> what? What? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Beg your pardon. <laughs> Supposed to be a student of theatre. I couldn't stand it. The old Vic was stultified with these awful acting going on, their bloody pearl drop earrings and their massive amount of makeup. And it was just wretched, and there were no ideas anywhere. And at the Rada, there were no ideas, there was nothing. I came from the wrong side of the track. I've been, all my life, I've been in, in confusion. Because, I, as I say, I come from a family who had no... The, the only book in our family was Glass's Guide to Used Car Prices. Oh, and we had Winston S. Churchill's History of the English-Speaking Peoples, Volume 1, unread on our <laughs> shelf by the elephant. <laughs> you know, and here was I in love with literature. So what could you do? You know, it was impossible. But... Um, I was in the kitchen one day and I burst into tears. I said, I'm a student of something I hate. Because I couldn't see having a future in Who's for Tennis. It just was impossible. I knew that, I think I instinctively knew the world was a richer place. London was so lively in the mid-50s. I mean, the mid-50s, ten years after the end of the war, suddenly the lid of depression had lifted from London, post-war depression. And suddenly ideas were in the air. Colin Wilson introduced our generation to a whole series of writers, exciting writers like Colin uh, Wilson being Colin Wilson was a popular writer at the time. Okay. He'd written a book called The Outsider, of inspired course. by Camus L'Etranger. Nice. And then we had André Gide and we had Jean Paul Sartre uh -huh. and uh, you know the oh, a whole range of them. And I'd had Dostoevsky when I was in the RAF. Um, I loved the Russian writers, I loved the French writers. Uh, it, it was exciting, the, 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 the spread was so much broader. I couldn't deal with the Anglo-centric English theatre. I was concerned with the, with the emotional problems of the English middle class. It just was so bloody dull. You know. Cigarette? 
And um, I, I broke down in tears one day and somebody said, why don't you go down to Stratford, East London? Down the bottom there's this old theatre. <coughs> a company called Theatre Workshop run by an extraordinary woman called Joan Littlewood. Um, it is very much attached to the, to the left wing and the Communist Party, but don't let that put you off. Sounds wonderful. They're doing well. No, in those days. I mean, don't forget, I come from a very uh, right-wing, idiot background. But I was thrilled with the idea of breaking all the rules, and I went down there and I saw this play called *The Good Soldier Schweik*, which was just heaven. Is that a Polish or Czech? Thing? No, it's um, God, Hungarian. Is it Hungarian? Hungarian. Hungarian. Is it Hungarian or? Yeah, where's um, very bohemian? Where's from yeah, Prussia? Uh, no, what's his name? Uh, uh, Budapest. Hungary. Yeah, Hungary. Yeah. Hungary. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Hungary. It was Kafka, and uh, my mind's gone. My mind's gone. Yaroslav Hasek wrote it. That's it. And uh, and the cartoons were by his mate. I can't remember his mate's name, but it was heaven. In those days, you went to the theatre in the West End. The moment you sat down, there'd be a drum roll. You'd have to bloody well stand up while they played God Save the King. No. They, honestly. And Theatre Workshop was the only one that refused to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was considered shocking. But it was the only theatre that looked out to Europe that wasn't Anglo-centric. It was Eurocentric, world-centric. I mean, it was fascinating. They did plays of uh, Fuente over Huna, um, Brecht, they did uh, the, the Italian straw hat. Plays from all over the place, Russia, Poland, Italy, everywhere. Not just England. And uh, I, I'd never been so happy in my life. They, they had the impertinence to have music in the place and dancing and singing and mime and jokes and the politics was thrilling. The ideas were spilling out over the stage, this scruffy old stage. I was absolutely in heaven. And this is all at the doing of Joan Littlewood? Yeah, yes, Joan Littlewood's theatre. And I went back to, to the RADA and fell in love and fell out of love and had got introduced to rude things like uh, speed and purple hearts and uh, the... The, the wadding from inhaler, benzodrine inhalers, with a Coca-Cola <laughs> that you could get high on in the dance clubs where there was no booze allowed. Uh -huh. I got introduced into, into interest, but mainly hanging out in Soho with people with all these ideas and his philosophy and poets and the writers in, the cafe, in a cafe called Jimmy the Greeks, um, at various bars, uh, where we just talked, and coffee bars where we talk all night. Mm. We were introduced to ideas for the first time, and it was absolutely thrilling. And the only place where none of this reached was in Gower Street and the Royal Academy of Dramatic Tedium. And so eventually I got thrown out. And uh, somebody said, because um, when you get thrown out of drama school as a student, you think that's the end of the world, because you, you've begun to think that drama school is the world. Of course. And it's just not. Whereas in reality? In reality, it's a very small beer. And uh, so somebody said they were auditioning for Joan Littlewood down the east, and I rang them up and I said, I'm coming down. They said, all right, all right. Okay, okay. Dirty. Calm down. And I came wandering down there on the two with my girlfriend. She'd got an audition already. God love her. I didn't think she'd get in. She didn't. Um, but um, I knew I was at home. 
You know, I think, that tell any artist in the world, any artist of any stripe, once you hear your music, once you see your your stuff, your flag, your follow, you, you know you belong, go for it, regardless of anything, mm-hmm. regardless of parental disapproval or money or anything, you just go for it. And I went for it, and it was just heaven. Heaven and hell, because it was a tough... She always called me middle-class, arty, public school, and she beat the hell out of me, but she got rid of it. <laughs> and I'm grateful to her forever, cow. But uh, there you are. So you actually got him from that interview? Yeah. Audition? Yeah. Audition, yeah. sorry. Audition. Yeah. yeah, no, no, the audition was... Because I, I went in with a ghastly prepared speech. When you're young, you always do something to show how much you can suffer. Really? Yeah, so you do <laughs> Romeo, you know. And the girls do, you know, um, they do Juliet. Or they do, I left no ring with her, what means this lady? And, all that, and we patter out our bit of Shakespeare and patter out our bit of bloody modern. Oh, it was hell. It was absolute hell. But then she said, she loved mime, and she said, no, and, and ad lib, which I love. And she said, look, you're a jazz rock and roll drummer in a band. And you've come down here and that, uh, for an audition, you think it's for a musical, and there's this silly woman banging on about Shakespeare, and you're telling your mates about it in the pub afterwards. That was right up my street. Perfect. So, yeah, because I'd just come Beautiful out. Beautiful direction. Yeah. I'd come out of the Air Force, and I just went whackity, whackity, whack, and had a good time. And uh, then there was a bit of mime about being... Um, in a dark cave and finding the light and coming out. I've done a lot of dance, a lot of dance and movement classes outside the RADA, because the RADA movement teaching was so appalling. Um, and uh, yeah, so I got a letter a few weeks later saying, would I be prepared to go to Moscow? Moscow in the 1950s. In the fi- 1957. The height of uh, the monolith, black, yeah. evil oh, empire. Oh, goddess! How yes. perfect. Yes, with all those... How did you feel at that notion of... Frightened. Frightened. That's good. Yeah, well, it it was scary. Yeah, of course. But it was joyful. And, uh... So, what were you going to do? What were you going to do in in Russia? We were going to do nine performances of the Scottish play, Macbeth. And I was playing Malcolm, which is impossible to play. Of course. You know, he's absolutely hopeless. I mean, no, no, they always give it to the young actor and watch him suffer, you know, because he has long lists of things and young actors have murderous time with lists because you think you've got to explain to the audience the meaning of every single word in the list yeah. instead of just doing the list and letting the audience, who speak perfectly good English, decide what it means themselves. <laughs> but that's the sort of thing you have to learn. Mm-hmm. It takes you a long time. <laughs> then you go... I mean, they still do it. You know, people get knighthoods for saying, oh, it was so bad, and this is so good. And say, oh, it's that what it means. I remember being in a production, uh, watching a production of uh, Faith Healer at the Royal Court years ago, and the, the divine Patrick McGee was playing the part, and he's saying, and the cock crow. And you heard, and I said to my brother, is that what it means? <laughs> And the cock crew. <laughs> and there it was. Thank you very much. Thank for you. Awfully kind. Awfully kind. Yes, awfully kind. Awfully kind. Yes, awfully yes, kind. Yes, I would have been in the dark. Yes. I wouldn't have known what it meant. And the cock crew. Twats. Honestly. Well, so there you are. That'll do for now. 
and worn out. I'm looking forward to hearing of our journey yeah. to the Soviet Union. In part two with the Dudley Union Sutton. of Soviet Socialist Republic. Comrade so, Sutton. So mere Zotrozhva, peace and friendship. In the yes. next episode yes. of Dudley Sutton on Resonance, uh, 104.4 FM. Spasiba. Spasiba. Pajalsta. Dankeschön. No, none of that. That's of course. Nice. Got that. That was, that was time. Is your city of Sheffield calling you? Calling you personal. Whatever your trade, whatever your job, all of them. Calling you as you go your way up and down the streets of Sheffield. Calling you in that crowd at Hillsborough. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, calling you. This is Sheffield calling. Why? I'll tell you why. Look at this. That's what happened to Sheffield last time. And make no mistake, no one can stop it happening again if another war starts. 
It looks peaceful enough now. It looked peaceful before 1939. Maybe you think it won't happen again. Like to bet on it? No, and nobody else would either. Perhaps you've been reading the papers or listening to the radio. There never seems to be any reason why we shouldn't have peace if we want it. Unfortunately, the same applies to war, whether we want it or not. And if it comes, you know what to expect. Look at them. Thousands of planes, the sky full of them. You won't know where they've come from. You may not know they're coming until they arrive. But you can bet they won't be British. And they won't be on a goodwill visit either. Thousands of them. And it only needs one to drop an atomic bomb. Maybe you're wondering what all this has to do with you. Maybe you think that if it comes, it comes. And that's all there is about it. But is it? There's a good few thousands up and down the country, men and women, who think different. If it comes, they're the ones who are going to be able to do something about it. And you ought to be one of them. There are plenty of jobs, plenty of variety, Plenty of friendly social relaxation in good canteen, as well as days of healthy training out in the open air. Look at it this way. You don't need reminding what it's like. Maybe you think you had enough of it last time. Well, everybody did. But that's not going to stop the man who starts it next time. Oh, I know, it's happened before. But don't forget, it can very well happen again. And then, where are you in that lot? Are you one of the crowd with no idea of what to do or how to do it? Or are you the man who knows the answers? The man in control? The man everybody looks to, to tell them what to do? The man who beats the bombs? Is someone else going to look after your wife and children if they're lucky? Or are you going to be in the position to do it yourself? Which is it to be? One insignificant unit in the crowd doing what you're told? Or this man? It's up to you. But it's up to you now, not when the trouble starts. Maybe you're one of those who say you'll be there on the day the trouble begins. You never made a greater mistake in your life. This is teamwork. There'll be no job for you if you wait till then. You won't be on the team. You won't even be a passive. You'll be nothing but a nuisance. And you'll find yourself shepherded here and there with the crowds, doing what you're told, or else. That's where you'll be. Just one of them. But as if you'd any sense, you'd be one of these. Which would you rather see yourself doing? Drifting aimlessly with the crowd or on the job? Which will you want to think you were afterwards? The man in control or one of the mob? But remember, it's now you've got to make up your mind. It's no good waiting till this starts all over again. And it may. But remember something else. The more people like you, men and women, there are training to deal with it, the less likely it is to start. It's the countries that aren't ready that get attacked, not those that are. 
That's the answer. The man or woman who's trained, ready, in control. That can be you. Isn't that how you'd rather think of yourself? And it's not only a matter of personal pride either. The man or woman who has been trained to deal with an emergency is much more likely to come through it. Which is it to be? It's up to you. Training, that's easy. One hour a week, that's all. Uniform, various allowances. But you can find out all about that from the civil defense men in the entrance to this cinema. Enroll as you go out. Sign on the dotted line. What do you get? You get the comradeship of those who are going to be the leaders when the trouble starts, because you'll be one of them. You get a new way of looking at the crowds in the streets, because if the bombs start dropping, you're the one they're going to look up to. You get confidence in yourself, and you'll get something else, a better opinion of yourself, because you're on the team. Sheffield is calling you. Sheffield is relying on you. This call is urgent. And it is a call to you, you who are sitting there in your seat listening to me. Train for service with the civil defense and make war less likely. Do not fail Sheffield. Do not fail them. Come and see me in my office, please. Sit down. I'd like to take a blood sample. something that you want to tell me. What do you want to know? I'd like you to tell me what happened in the glade that day. Do you want to know why? Why I cut his head off and put it back on? Yes. I didn't mean to do him any permanent harm. I wanted to take his head and play a joke with it, like putting it on a wall and frightening people as they walked by. But the joke got lost and in the end I put his head back on. It sounds as if you expect me to judge you, responsible or irresponsible, innocent or guilty, sane or insane, responsible or irresponsible. Innocent or guilty, sane or insane, innocent or guilty, responsible or irresponsible, sane or insane, innocent or guilty, innocent or guilty, responsible or irresponsible, responsible or irresponsible. I'll judge myself. You may judge yourself, but I can condition you to pass any judgment I like. If you hold an opinion, it's because I let you hold that opinion. 
Why do you say I? Why not we? If you like. We're getting away from the glade. Now, 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 you don't have to worry about a thing. Everything's just going to be just fine. Here we are in a nice, snug place, small cabin, but comfortable. It's in the woods, far away. I mean, I doubt if the police would ever think to look here. Could be worse, you know. And as for that strange fellow, well, he hasn't done us any harm. Oh, I'll admit me. He acts pretty weird from time to time, but when all is said and done, he really hasn't done anything wrong. And Lord knows, in a project like, like ours, which has such scientific import, we might um, find a fellow like that as val valuable. You know, Sheila, I have a dream. And it's a big dream, Sheila. Oh, I know, people laugh, scoff. But Sheila, I know that deep in my heart, you, we, of course, you and I together, can do something big. Sheila, God blessed me with these beautiful white hands. They're not the hands of a factory worker, hands of an insurance man. Sheila, they're in the hands of a, an artistic scientist. Why, I remember when I was a young boy how my mother and father slaved, yes, slaved, worked hard, saving a few pennies here and there. All in the hopes that someday, perhaps, I could go go to medical school. The tannery, I remember, four, four blocks from our house. My father would come home at six o'clock in the evening with that smell of the burning hides all over him. Sheila, I've always wanted to erase that smell. from me and anybody else who needed help. Sheila, these are the hands of a, a surgeon. Just imagine, after all this is over, Everything has calmed down. We're out of here. Out far away from any ideas of police following us. 
Maybe we could go to Sweden. Now, that's a country, Sheila, which at the present time is really more progressive and forward-looking than where we are now. Although I must admit that I was reasonably impressed by the inaugural speech of President Nixon. Perhaps this country sooner or later will get into a position of, let's say, understanding, where a project like ours would be received with open arms. But for the time being anyway, you know as well as I do, that the Scandinavian countries are more open to this kind of thing. Sheila, we can build a clinic. The clinic of Dr. Chicago. It could be in a small town outside of Stockholm, maybe, near a branch trunk of the railway. We could have our own station, station wagon, which could on, oh, say, Thursday nights, go into town and pick up a whole carload of those pale and one females females let's say from all over the world who have heard of the clinic of Dr. Chicago they would come Sheila Sheila, they would come from far and wide, far and wide, miles around, in the knowledge that they can be helped from their hurt bodies and minds by the work and by the research that I, along with you, my dear Sheila, will have done by the time the clinic is built. They will come and you and I will be there to meet them at the gate. The clinic could have rooms, Sheila, 16 small, white, sparkling, antiseptic rooms with white tile on the floors, silver curtains, sheets of percale, soft pillows. Every room could have an anteroom with tables of aluminum upon which could be placed the flowers and porcelain vases telegrams propped up on the candelabra. 
telegram she learned flowers from their from their loved ones their relatives their families Sheila we could help those women we could have for example an operating room with two adjoining recovery rooms. We could have pools for hydrotherapy. We could have salons for afternoon tea, for bridge. We could have piazzas, Sheila. Piazzas on all sides of the clinic, where in the waning hours of the afternoon, our patients could sit in comfortable cane chairs to take the evening sun. We could have books, Sheila, libraries on portable tables that you and I could bring to them, wheeling around the piazzas in the afternoon so that they could read stories, Sheila, romances, historical biographies to take their minds off their hurt bodies hurt psychologies Sheila this could be the only unique clinic of its kind in the world the inspiration of Dr. Chicago I want you to know that I want you to be part of this dream. This was Isotopica with me, Simon Tishko, here in Resonance. 104.4 FM.